Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legfold. Colonel James Cleet joins me today on Beneath the Wing. Colonel Cleet became our Wing Commander, that is the top executive leader in our organization, in August of 2019. Militarily speaking, he's responsible for setting and guiding our strategic direction of all our 1,200 people as they fulfill the readiness requirements surrounding our eight C-130H3 aircraft. He's also a husband, father, and a history buff, so in this special Veterans Day edition of Beneath the Wing, we'll little, learn a little more about him as well as some good history. Welcome. Well, thanks, Chief, for the outstanding introduction. I appreciate it. It's what I do. Hey, let's start out with how you got here. What got a young James Cleet interested in military service in the Air Force in general? Well, I, I lived on Air Force bases my uh, in, entire uh, life, pretty much. My dad was a C-130 when I was born in Hawaii, Hickam, a C-130 winch operator, uh, which I'll explain here in a second, and then a... A flight engineer, so he wanted me to fly C-130s forever, but uh, I, I broke his heart at some point there. We'll, we'll get into that. But uh, grew up on Air Force bases, watched my dad do his thing. Uh, spent a lot of time in Hawaii on the beach uh, with you know, the, the different crews. Uh, you know, my mom would make uh, big buckets of spaghetti to feed the crews on different holidays or whatever. So I just grew up in the Air Force environment, uh, saw that happening, and wanted to be part of that uh, pretty much uh, my whole life. What would, what does a winch operator do on a C-130? Because that's not an AFSC or a job that we necessarily have anymore. No, that's a, that was a unique one. So I did not know what my dad did for a long time because it was all classified. Uh, it was called the Corona, uh, Operation Corona. Uh, back in the 60s, 70s, I don't know when it uh, shut down, but uh, before there was telemetry, electronic telemetry to uh, transmit uh, spy satellite information back to Earth, used to be wet film, so the uh, satellite would circle the globe, take pictures of the uh, former Soviet Union, and then it would kick out a canister over the Pacific Ocean, and uh, the C-130, several C-130s, uh, would fly uh, with a array of hooks, uh, if you would, hanging out the back of the airplane, and as these canisters of, of spy film would re-enter the atmosphere, they'd snatch them out of midair, and uh, as they snatched them out of midair, uh, mid there was a winch in the back of the airplane, and they would haul, winch the, uh, the recovery uh, capsule, winch it back in, and then process it and hand it over to the National Security Agency. So he did that for many years. Uh, I didn't know about it until uh, they uh, declassified the program uh, about a decade, maybe a decade and a half ago, and he let me know what he really did. So dad didn't come home and necessarily talk about what he did in the military, so that still inspired you to join the military. How did him not talking about his specific job still get you interested in just yep. serving in general? I, I don't know if I ever knew the difference. I knew he flew C-130s. I knew uh, he, he enjoyed his job. I know he enjoyed the environment uh, he was in, uh, watching him with uh, all the all the crews and interacting. You know, I, I grew up with a bunch of kids whose you know parents were on the cruise as well. And so I, the specific job didn't matter as much as the environment. Uh, I always enjoyed that environment of camaraderie, uh, 
uh, the environment of, of that close-knit close uh, crew type thing. And so that's what really brought me along to wanting to serve in the future. Were you on base housing when you were living in Hawaii or off? I was. I was uh, on, well, both really. I was at Eva Beach uh, off base, but then I spent the last four years that I really remember in Hawaii uh, on, on Hickam. As a kid, one would think growing up in Hawaii would have been a whole lot of fun. Was it hard to? Uh, well, in some ways, yes. Uh, if you want to call it uh, some potential bigotry. They, they, they had something called kill a Howley day and, and a Howley is a, a pejorative the, uh, the locals use uh, for visitors and, and white kids. And uh, yeah, going to school sometimes was rough. You were, you were the minority. Uh, if you want to say the shoe was on the other foot uh, in Hawaii uh, for some of that. But uh, for, you know, for the most part, my, uh, my, my youth was, was great. You know, loving family, had a lot to do in Hawaii. I don't know if I owned a pair of shoes for the first you know, seven, eight years of my life. I was just barefoot everywhere. But, you know, there was, you know, some friction between uh, the local population and, uh, you know, the perceived foreigners there that uh, had to work through as a kid. You're now the executive champion or one of the executive champions for the Asian American Pacific Islanders Special Emphasis Council here in the state. Did that, growing up in Hawaii, that sense of being the minority, did that shape your enthusiasm to support that? I would say yes. I mean, I, I volunteered to be the uh, the Minnesota, you know, champion for the AAPI, uh, both growing up in Hawaii and, and, frankly, my later service where I served in Japan and Korea uh, led me to want to uh, to do that. Uh, like you said earlier, uh, I have a, a penchant for uh, history so and culture. So uh, since I lived there, uh, Having uh, been exposed to those cultures has interested me. Having been exposed and been on the different islands uh, where World War II battles and such took place, uh, I, I've always had an interest in that direction. Uh, so volunteering for this was just a, a natural extension uh, of that. And frankly, I like the food, so it's well, always a bonus. It is. It is a good bonus. Um, at some point, you know, you grew up, you graduated high school in Hawaii. You yeah. decided to. I, I didn't do high get, school in Hawaii. I did, oh, my dad retired. That's right. And then, uh, yeah, I, I did high school of all things in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Somehow you got interested in commissioning and going to the Air Force Academy. What drove you to the academy? Uh, you know, it's, it's all related, but I was uh, in the Civil Air Patrol uh, through a teenager. So I did high school uh, in the Civil Air Patrol. I got a pilot's license through a scholarship through the Civil Air Patrol. Um, and so flying was a passion. So I combined the passion for flying and the passion for uh, service and my propensity to enjoy uh, the military environment. And uh, I was looking for a way to do that. Uh, my dad was influ influential as this as well. He said, hey, if you're going to go into the Air Force, uh, maybe you ought to try doing that as an officer, particularly if you want to fly airplanes, that might be a requirement. Um, and so uh, he helped me research options. And so I was just a uh, a kid going through high school, not knowing uh, paths to become a pilot. And uh, so as we started researching that together, uh, this was well before you could just Google it. Um, the Air Force Academy became an option and, and I applied. Uh, was an easy path actually. I applied the first year, didn't get in, had to go to a year of college uh, to prepare for it. And then uh, ended the Air Force Academy and that started uh, what has now been a, what, a 30 year, 31 year career enjoying it. What was the time like at the Air Force Academy? For somebody like me, I mean, I 
I understand what the college experience is like, but that is a completely different animal. Isn't yeah, it? It, unless you live it, uh, there's probably what about ten folks on the base who've done it. Uh, it's it's hard to explain. It's a combination. Let's say it, it, there's always pressure for four years, and pressure comes from different ways. You can do, you can never do everything the Air Force Academy uh, has to offer. You can't do it all, so you have to make decisions, and that leads to pressure. So you can decide, hey, I'm going to concentrate on. Uh, the military side of this thing, or the academic side of this thing, or the sports side of this thing, or you know, try and spread yourself out. Um, I I got into some of the flying clubs there. Like I said, I always wanted to fly, so uh, enjoyed that. Academically, uh, it was challenging uh, for me, so I had to work really hard on that. Um, and then militarily, eh, there's there's always pressure, as especially your your freshman year. It's like you know one full year of basic training. Uh, it's it's just nonstop, and then as you become a a, a sophomore, junior, and, and a senior, it, it becomes a little less uh, regimented. But you know, you're, you're there uh, on behest of uh, the taxpayer, so it's always pointed out to you that uh, your job, the American taxpayer is paying for you to go to school, so your job is to study. Your job is to learn and and to become a good officer. And so for four years, uh, that's what you do that kind of instills that sense of you're serving the public immediately as of day one with our commissioned officers that go through the Air Force Academy. There's times when that pressure really does maybe cook the heart and soul of some of those folks. What were some of the more challenging times during your during your time there at the Academy? Uh, it, um, there's a very large break uh, when you go there between your, your civilian self and, and your military self. And I think uh, some folks struggle with that. Um, the, the regimentation uh, going from, if you want to call it a civilian, to a remarkably regimented 24 hours a day environment, uh, that, that's, that's difficult for everybody, right? It, no, no one gets that 100% right. It's more difficult for some than others. But uh, and then it, it's four years, right? And, and that's that's... Part of it, you know, basic training, oh, whatever, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, uh, you, you can gut that in, in some ways. For four years, uh, you are going to have ups and downs and, and doubts of, you know, am I really doing the right thing? Do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Um, and so four years, the churn, I would say the, the length of the churn mm-hmm. uh, is difficult for a lot of people, including myself, uh, say, wow, am, am I doing the right thing? And you get to go back home for summer, you know, for brief times or, or Christmas, and you see some of your friends who are, uh, since I was from Pennsylvania, a lot of my friends went to University of Pennsylvania or something like that. They had a little bit different environment than I did. Maybe potentially a little more fun, uh, you know, a little more freedom, a whole lot more freedom. Yeah. Um, and and you, you second guess yourself when you go home for Christmas and you go, gosh darn, I'm going to have to go right back into that in, in two weeks. So, yeah, there, was, there were challenges. What got you through that? Uh combination of things. I I got in with uh, a group of uh, other cadets at the Air Force Academy that I uh, enjoyed spending my time with um, that were supportive of each other uh, outside of the military environment there. Uh, the flying, so the, the flying, the extracurricular activities, they, they get you out of that regimented uh, world where, hey, once, once you're in an airplane flying by yourself or flying with someone else, uh, 
the, those other things sort of drift away. And then I had a, a remarkably supportive family who, uh, you know, this was again before you could just email or text, uh, you know, either letters home, you know, extended family, my grandparents, my parents, uh, who would come out and visit or you know, phone calls and such like that. So I had a great support network as well. Your, uh, I'm sure calls from your dad especially were meaningful during that time. Um, I, w I would say potentially not. My dad might have been a little firmer than most, which is, really? uh, you, you chose this, you're on your own. Uh, he was supportive, but uh, he was a lot more, hey, and you made your bed, you're going to sleep in it. My, my mom would be, if you would, the comforting uh, of my two parents. So, yeah, it was interesting. I can see who rubbed off the most on you. <laughs> uh, it's obviously my mom. Yeah, not the one that I was yeah. going to name there. <laughs> Having worked with you now for three years. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so you started flying F-16s after you got out of the Air Force Academy. And, I mean, almost immediately, you went through the Academy in the late 80s and started flying F-16s. And things got busy, um, or things were busy there right at the beginning of the 90s. What was that experience like where, you know, suddenly you're you're going from this relatively peaceful existence in the military? I mean, we'd been done with Vietnam for a decade and a half and not a ton going on for the F-16 fighter community. And now suddenly we're involved in the first Gulf War. Yeah, I actually sat out the first Gulf War um, just based on timing from the, uh, the Air Force Academy. I was frustrated. So I was a senior. Uh, when the first Gulf War happened, and uh, you know, back to my mom, I was like, "Gosh, I'm frustrated. I'm missing out." She wondered why the heck uh, I'd be ever uh, feel bad about missing out on on the combat opportunity. And uh, the way I explained it to her was, "Hey, it'd be like training forever for the Olympics and then never getting to go." Um, but yeah, you're you're right. The '90s were a, a, a unique change of uh, the Cold War going to uh, the post-Cold War environment and then, the, and then the Middle East. And so yeah, we started getting busy uh, just Air Force-wide and then F-16 in particular because it was just then becoming uh, the mature machine that it uh, developed into. And uh, I, I deployed to the Middle East a lot. It just became part of my, part of my career. Uh, for better or for worse, every place I went, I, oh, for example, I showed up first duty station in Misawa, Japan. And six months later, I was in the Middle East. And then 18 months later, I was in the Middle East. And then right as I was going to P, uh, PCS uh, to another air base, uh, they extended me to deploy to the Middle East again before I PCS. So that was, was sort of my career. Everywhere I went, uh, I had the opportunity. Um, and, th and thankful for it. I, I en see, enjoyed it, but I learned a lot uh, from those deployments about myself and about other people. What did you learn about uh, yourself in those deployments that has kind of carried you through in your career? Uh, well, if you, if you want to say you get thrown into these environments and uh, you know, they're, they're stressful, so you learn how to, say, care for yourself, but what things you need as an individual uh, to function in, in some crappy places and uh, how, how to get through uh, very challenging times. And, and most of those... Most of the solution to those problems uh, in, involve, I would say, other people. So, again, so maybe this is a theme, uh, but the the folks you deploy with are important. Right? You you lean on them, they lean on you. Uh, the 
the, the best times of my military career uh, deployed were in some pretty challenging places, but it was the, the people that I deployed with that made it tolerable. Um, and, and frankly, back home, it, it was challenging. Uh, you know, it's no surprise. I, you know, I was married and, and divorced, and it was the folks back home who supported the family, supported me, uh, you know, and, and sometimes it always didn't work. And so the guys in your unit, uh, for me, the fighter squadron, uh, became family, and, and that's how you got through the, those tough times. They talk a lot about the camaraderie and that sense of family in military units, especially ones that go through really, really difficult things. And when we roll into Veterans Day and people say that, uh, you know, it is good to honor our veterans in the service that they performed for the country. How that that shaping that sense of family within within Veterans Day? Do you think the average person uh, really understands that sense of camaraderie that's built through the difficulties? I, oh boy, I, I would say no, through no fault of their own. It's just, I mean, it's hard to describe. Uh, you know, unless. You served in one of those units, and, and there's there's different senses of camaraderie in different units at different times, right? It, it comes and goes, and each one's got a personality. Each unit's got a personality, and that changes over time. Uh, it's sort of like a professional sports team in some ways. Unless you served on a professional or you know played on a sp professional sports team, you don't know what that camaraderie is. Um, so trying to explain it, I and mean, I've tried to explain it to my kids, uh, you know, they get bits and pieces, but, you know, stories only go so far. Living it uh, is the only real way that you can understand it. So mm -hmm. I think there's value in trying to explain it. I think there's value trying to share it uh, and, and through whatever manner. There's been plenty of books written about it and all that. But unless you're living it, uh, I think it's a really difficult thing to explain to other people. You... Um you mentioned that you were married, then divorced, uh, then you got married again, and you lived as a dual military couple. Was that a challenge? Uh, yes. I mean, so uh, my wife, Eva, uh, was a flight surgeon, and then uh, flight surgeon in Duluth, and then the state air surgeon. Um, fortunately, you know, she didn't deploy a whole lot. I was, I was doing the, the bulk of deploying, but there was, you know, there's some, there's some, Challenges dual military, right? You know, deconflicting schedules. And she's a an accomplished woman, uh, just not militarily, but uh, just her civilian job as well. So there's always been a a time management uh, thing in my family that we've had to uh, work on and overcome. Uh, she also has a strong personality, um, so therefore we have that to manage. Two strong personalities, but uh, it, it's been good. We've we've grown a lot. Uh, over the years. Um, she's, she retired about four years ago now, and uh, so now she's working specifically on her civilian job. And um, out here at the wing, we have a lot of folks that have that, that dual military. One of the, a lot of challenges that go along with it, yeah. but one of the great things about that is you don't necessarily have to explain why what we're doing is important and that sense of camaraderie and family and fellowship that we have out here. Yep. Different in the medical field where your wife worked uh, compared to the flyers and all that. Pretty easy to understand when you have to go and fly and go and deploy. Maybe that, that balance is a little bit, little bit easier that way. I, I, I think 
one of her advantages of, of understanding my environment was when she was a flight surgeon, obviously she was attached to the fighter squadron up in Duluth. So she saw, you know, that camaraderie. Uh, she saw what everyone was doing, how hard they worked, how we, how, how we had to work in, in and build that camaraderie. So she was actually closer to it uh, than than most people, and so it was easier for her to understand uh, what I was thinking and why I was thinking those things. You mentioned Duluth, and that was definitely not the St. Paul Air National Guard base where you're at now. Is she the reason you ended up in Duluth? Uh, she is. Um, well, I, the short story is this: uh, Like I said, I was I was divorced, living in Germany. She was also divorced, living in Germany. So what you had was uh, two thirty-year-old people in a foreign country, um, and we just naturally started hanging out uh, with uh, the other group of folks around the same age, and uh, we started dating. And she was getting out of the military at that point. Well, I say off active duty, so we were both on active duty at this time. And she came back to Minnesota for uh, her residency, and I just came back to visit. And while I came back to visit, uh, I drove up to Duluth and uh, started asking some questions about the Guard. I didn't know much about the uh, National Guard at that point, but uh, she was here in Minnesota. I went up to Duluth and uh, learned about them and uh, took a job with Duluth and spent several years up there prior to coming down here. What brought you down here? Uh, really saying yes to an opportunity. So uh, Colonel Jim Johnson uh simply asked, hey, would you be interested in coming to the 133rd? I said yes, um, and I guess the rest is history. So you have to switch from flying a single-engine little fighter plane all by yourself to a big plane, not super fast, and a full crew. What was the diff most difficult struggle in, or what was that the diff most difficult challenge in switching that entire airframe for you? It, uh, recognizing, this is an, an internal conflict with me, recognizing I will never be as good in this airplane as I was in the F-16, right? So that's a, it's a humbling experience. Uh, you know, so Colonel Johnson hired me to be the OG. Uh, that's the operations op group uh, commander. Operations group commander. Yep. And, uh, your job there is not to be the ace of the base. You know, you, you want to be a competent pilot, but you're, you're worried about your airmen's training, flying hours, right? Uh, taking care of their careers, their professional military education, on and on. Uh, you just weren't going to have the hours uh, available to become the best C-130 pilot that you could be. So I had to uh, admit early on that although I would love uh, to learn everything about this airplane, I, I was just never going to be uh, as good as someone who grew up in it. Did that type of immediate change into something uncomfortable make you a better prepared for a wing commander position? Uh, I, I like to think so, because um, what, it, what it made me do was depend on others for expertise. I mean, you always have to do that uh, in your career. You're never going to be an expert in, any, in everything. Uh, but uh, it made me have to sit back and ask questions that, in, in some ways, if you grew up in the MDS, uh, the, the aircraft, the airframe, uh, your entire career, you wouldn't ask. So I, I started asking a lot of questions often and, and depending on other people for the answers. And, and I think that was, it was, it was good for me uh, as, as leadership development. You, um, you moved into the wing commander position and you talked about 
working in crappy places, and now suddenly you're in charge of this base. Are you saying this is a crappy place? I, 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 don't, I don't believe that to be the case. I tell you what, I like, I like where we work. I, I've loved the people here for a whole lot longer. Well, I've been here longer than you, so it's easy for me to say. But you become wing commander in August of 2019. COVID hits. C-130 mission retention hits. George Floyd is murdered, and the entire National Guard is mobilized. We fly out to D.C. There's a growing threat in China. You just keep on naming the, this is a great place to work, but we face some pretty crappy situations. How do you stay emotionally and psychologically healthy when leading a big organization with constant swirl like this? Uh, I think it's indivi different individuals uh, do it differently. The, the way I do it is uh, I compartmentalize and then prioritize. And so... Uh, and this is not flippant, it, it is literally, you know, is, is it going to kill me right now uh, or affect me right now? No, okay, then I have some time to think about it. And then I can uh, sit down and, and think about the problem sets and then develop a plan to attack them. Um, sometimes, you know, if you talk to my wife, I compartmentalize too much. I, I don't share, uh, and, I, and I take some of this type of stuff home, and so... Uh, since I do have a good support network at home, you know, she'll, she'll pull it out of me and, and help decompress me. But uh, yeah, I, I prioritize, hey, this is the things that need to happen right now. Um, and then we make decisions on those and the best decision we can. Uh, I'm not saying we get them all 100% right, but in retrospect, there's always things you can do better, but sometimes you don't have the time. And then after you deal with those things uh, that are right on your, you know, the near rocks, the, the, the things that's going to get you in trouble right now, um, then you, you plan for what you think is next. Sometimes those things happen, sometimes they don't. But uh, if, you, if you fail to plan, uh, it's gonna become more difficult. So prioritize for me is, uh, is really important. Has the wing taken on that part of your personality where we're able to, the big organization is able to reflect the way you compartmentalize and prioritize? Uh, I don't know, and, and I'm not sure I want it to. Uh, you know, that is my leadership style. Uh, I rapidly try to figure out what needs to happen and, and go execute um, and then leave those things that I can think about until later. But we don't want our entire organization. I, I, I don't need 1,200 cleats. Uh, what I need is uh, one cleat and a whole bunch of different other people bringing whatever works for them uh, to the table so that we can come up with uh, solutions that are not just driven by one individual. Uh, we tend, organizations tend to make better decisions when you have all sorts of inputs and all sorts of uh, opinions uh, moving forward. So yeah, they always say organization does take on uh, some of the personality of their leader. Uh, yeah, that may be true, but uh, I, I prefer having a uh, multiple opinions, multiple options on the table so that we can discuss them so that we're not group thinking uh, down paths that are not uh, as optimum. Sometimes tough to do in a military setting. It is. It is. It, it, it takes energy. And, and I would say we're still not there uh, at, at meetings. I, I still get the, uh, you know, hey, bring the, you know, okay, let's ask questions. Let's put the ideas on the table. And uh, I, I still get the you know, the look from uh, the crowd of, oh, am I really going to be the person that extends their 
their opinion at the expense of uh, potentially being shot down or being, you know, said no to or whatever. So there's still that reluctance, and, and that's that's part of the military structure, right? Our hierarchical, hierarchical that's a big word, uh, structure that, uh, you know, I would say prevents that. Uh, I wouldn't say it prevents that, but I think leaders need to actively pursue those inputs all the time because it's just not going to be natural. It is not natural for tech sergeant so-and-so uh, to speak direct to an 06. We have to elicit those responses, and, and it's tough. It is tough, uh, and it takes a lot of work. Like you said, it's, it, it's emotional energy that is expended when somebody takes that professional risk to say exactly what they think is right or justified in that moment or would even shape the direction. And getting over that and getting through that is just this constant takes, struggle. It takes work, constant work. We've been talking with Colonel James Cleet, the wing commander of the 133rd Airlift Wing here in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're going to take a little break, uh, hear from our recruiters, and we'll be right back. Stick around. Hey, this is Sergeant Todd with the 133rd Recruiting Office. Just want to say thank you for all those veterans that have served and currently serving. It's a big responsibility. It's not for everybody. But if you have gotten out recently and you're thinking about maybe getting back in, give me a call here, 612-505-6799. See if you're eligible to get back in. If you miss the itch, if you miss that camaraderie, or if you know anyone, family, friends, please give me a call, 612-505-6799. Thank you, and again, happy Veterans Day. Thanks to our recruiters for that great message. If you're interested in serving in the Air National Guard, please reach out and contact them. We need good people. We've been talking with Colonel James Cleet of the 133rd Airlift Wing, our wing commander. Welcome back to the second part of Beneath the Wing. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk a little bit. We, we learned about your history. We learned about how you got into the military. Um, Veterans Day being today when this is getting released, you are a historian and a collector. Let's talk about collections first. Okay, okay, good. You're, you're a collector of the M1 Garand rifles. Why is that an important piece of military history? Oh, jeez. Uh, as General Patton said, it's the... Oh, I'm going to get the quote wrong, so that'll, that'll be a, a flaw here, but uh, the greatest battle implement ever produced. So, uh, yeah, it started prior to World War II, but... Uh, in many ways, it is what won World War II for the U.S. military. Uh, the fact that we had a reliable, mass-produced, rapid-fire, in semi-automatic uh, rifle when many of our adversaries only had bolt-action rifles. And it gave our soldiers on the battlefield a, a competitive edge, and it mattered. And so I've been collecting uh, different variations of that uh, forever. Now, we used the, the M1 Garand through World War II uh, in, in Korea. It's been in foreign service around the world, uh, the Philippines, Denmark, Holland, all, all over. And so I've been collecting uh, different variations of the M1 for years. Explain your collection. I mean, it's more than just, I see a rifle and I go out and buy it for you. No, no, I... I uh, I buy many rifles, uh, and 
disassemble them to find the right parts to produce uh, one correct rifle. So it just for example, if uh, a rifle has got a serial number of January 1943, I'll try and find all the parts uh, in Springfield Armory, uh, Winchester, whomever uh, labeled all the parts. So I'll, I'll find every single part from January 1943 and assemble one, what they call it, correct rifle to put on the, to put on the wall. And then for all the rifles that uh, I disassemble, uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll make shooters out of them, if you would. And so it'll be a rifle that has got all the, you know, all the right parts uh, to shoot, but it's not got any historical significance. It's just a nice rifle. And I'll I don't know, give them, sell them, give them to fam friends and family because my wife doesn't want hundreds of M1s are around the around the house takes up a lot of space takes up some space I I, I got the uh, a couple gun safes that uh, they're, they're stored in you are uh, it's not your only military artifact that you you collect you, you collect other things and there's stories behind the things that you collect. I, 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 I do like uh, the story is frankly just as important as the artifact so yes I if you want to say I'm a collector of stories uh, I'd like to put it that way. So what's your most prized military artifact? Ooh, uh, yeah, so uh, several of the rifles uh, are important. Um, I, I've got uh, just a hodgepodge of things. I guess one of the most fun things is uh, I have a, a scramble bell. Uh, it's from uh, a, a British air base, uh, World War II, and it's the bell that they actually rang uh, to uh, scramble the fighters to uh, go go battle uh, the German fighters coming across the channel. So they'd ring the bell, the fighter pilots would jump into their Spitfires or uh, P-51s or whatever, Hurricanes or whatever they were flying and uh, go up and, and fight uh, the Battle of Britain and then post-Battle of Britain, uh, the uh, World War, or I'm sorry, the German bombers coming across the channel. That's sitting in your office? It is sitting in my office. Yeah. Just above that, there's another artifact not from the Allied side of history. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's the uh, so there's a there's a sword and it, it's attached to a, a good luck flag. So, uh, like I said, so while I lived in Japan, uh, history. So this is a a sword that was given to uh, a Japanese soldier uh, by his family, probably. Again, I don't know the exact history because I don't have it traced back to the individual soldier. But uh, the blade is um, significantly old, uh, dated roughly from the 1500s. Uh, it's got new hardware on it, though, for the World War II time. And this uh, soldier gave his life on the battlefield, and uh, an American picked up the uh, the sword and the and the flag, and it's uh, sitting in my office as well. Um, if if I knew if I knew the family, I'd hand it back to him, but uh, I don't. So uh, just as a way to honor soldiers in general. Uh, yep, it's it's displayed there. Come on by if you want to see it. So, what does the history of war teach us about the importance of peace? Uh, it, there's a cost. Um, uh, there's a cost to be bared by uh, each generation in different ways. Uh, peace can't be assumed. Uh, I don't think we've had a, a frankly a, a pretty good. Uh, stretch of peace. Uh, if you want to, you know, we, we had had the Middle East uh, conflicts and such like that, but uh, we haven't had large World War One, World War Two uh, scale wars in a while. But uh, there's, there's, I want to say people. There's people uh, and systems uh, in the world that are 
uh, in conflict with what we what we value in our country, which is uh, individual freedoms and liberties. And uh, there's there's a price to be paid for that. And uh, I would I would say that if we don't work really hard while we're at peace uh, to deter people from uh, taking that from us, uh, we may have to pay that price again in blood in the future. And uh, I would prefer if we don't have to. Uh, but if we do, I, I believe that there are Americans who will stand up uh, and, and say no and pay that price if required. Is that sense of mission really what drives you as a wing commander? Uh, yes, it, it drives me. Um, I would say a corollary uh, to that, what drives me is uh, I, I'd rather, if I'm going to be wrong uh, about war and airmen, I would rather be wrong in the fact being more prepared for war and combat in our federal mission and never have to use it um, than not be prepared and have to use it. So I would, if I'm going to air, I'm going to prepare our airmen for the worst case scenario, you can never really be prepared for that, but we can get uh, skills, uh, wartime fighting skills, uh, mental, if you would, uh, thinking about what's going to be required of, of heavy combat and prepare our airmen in that way and hopefully never need it, then just pretend it's not going to happen or you know, prepare for a lower level of war and, and not be ready for the high end. I, I would much rather, and I've used this quote more than once, which is, the more we sweat in peace, the less we uh, bleed in war. It's not mine. I think it's Schwarzkopf's. Um, but I, I definitely uh, lean in that direction. There have been generations and generations of veterans that have sweat a whole lot and never gone to war. Is their service to the country just as valuable as those who have deployed? Uh, or is say, it different? Nope. It, it's just as valuable. Why? Because... Their sweat, uh, their deterrence, uh, save lives. I, I, you can't put a number on it. You don't know how many it happened, right? The, the fact that we went through a Cold War, uh, I have no idea how many people would have died if we went you know, to a full-up war. But their service over that time uh, prevented that, and, and that is remarkably valuable. It's difficult on Veterans Day um, to put some sort of hierarchy on the level of service of a veteran? I don't, I don't try. I, I, I don't. I, if someone volunteered to put on this country's uniform at some point in their life, I value that service. And, and then I put a period after that, and that's all it takes. Yeah. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit. We'll... Uh, each podcast, I do something with my guests called Quick Question. It gives us a little bit of a view inside of your brain and what's your first answer, no thinking. Sure Don't analyze that? it. Okay. Yep. All right. Not hard questions either. We'll start off with the easy one. All right. C-130 or F-16? <laughs> yes. Cop out. Okay. Beer or wine? Uh, wine. Flying or sailing? Oof. Flying. Would you do anything for love or money? Love, money, eh. You got to give an answer here. What Would I do anything for anything love, for or, love money? or money? Oh, I thought you were telling me to pick one. Pick Things one. I love or more money. Uh, 
No, I would not do ever, anything for love or money. Okay. Uh, apple fritter or Danish? Fritter. Best heavy metal band that you've seen in concert? Uh, Tool, outstanding concert, highly recommend it. Best metal band overall? Uh, oof, if it's not Tool, I'd go with Metallica. Good call. This is why we get along, by the way. Um, okay, flying or sailing was one of those questions that I, I asked. And one thing that folks don't necessarily know about you is you sail. I do. Tell us about that. Uh, I say I picked it up as a hobby several years ago. Um, went on a uh, a sailing trip where we hired a captain and uh, enjoyed that. But um, maybe it's a control issue. Maybe it's just a. I was going to say, please don't tell me this is a control thing. Uh, maybe it is. <laughs> I don't know. But I said, hey, I think I can do this. So I started taking uh, classes, and I got my uh, my skipper's license, so I can rent and sail boats up to sixty feet. And uh, so it's been. Uh, Sort of a family vacation, I say tradition at this point is to, it, it's our big vacation a year. I, I don't get to take a lot of vacation, so when I do, uh, we make it big. And so uh, we just came back from two weeks in Croatia. One week of it was uh, was sailing there. It was great. You, um, that's basically the vacation is sitting out on a boat. Well, no so phone, no email. Yes, I would say there, there's, phone. there's phone and email, uh, you know, it, but when, when you, Get close to a port, uh, you got better Wi-Fi. But yeah, it's a uh, you know, typical day is wake up in the morning, have breakfast, sail to somewhere to do something you want to do, whether that's snorkeling or hiking on the side of a hill or whatever. And then another half a day sailing, uh, park it in, in a small town probably, have have dinner in, in town and just call it a uh, RV on the water. How about that? Yeah, but there's something about being on the water, isn't it's, there? It's, I, I don't want it. No, don't think I want to be in the navy or be a sailor or anything. But yes, uh, have have enjoyed that uh, that change of pace. Yeah, I, I like my 18 and a half motorboat, but uh, yep, I can see how sailing would be just something absolutely peaceful. Um, okay, so we've been talking a little bit about history. Do you know who James Henry Cleet is? Oh, he's a uh, an artist, not uh, not not related. I'm so impressed. As far as I can tell. Yes, absolutely right. So he's a famous, somewhat famous photographer and painter from England, and most of his work centered around what? Uh, ships. Yeah. Uh, one of his paintings still on display in South Shields Art Gallery is the Mission Ship. So I found this piece of history kind of interesting in that you're, you sail, uh, and he did a lot of stuff with boats and sailing. What does sailing teach us about leadership? I've never, never thought about it because it's just a recreation. Um, sailing, it's technical. Uh, that's partially, I think, why I like it, uh, but it's slow, right? So you're only drifting along there at 7 to 10 knots, and uh, you're, you're constantly trying to optimize uh, the, the sail, uh, the trim, uh, to get more, if you would, velocity or speed out of the ship. I guess that's maybe what leadership is is uh, you're constantly adjusting uh, small things to get uh, better performance out of your organization. Is that um, you're, you grew up going fast in a plane and now you know leading a big organization that sometimes goes slow and you're making constant adjustments? Is yeah, that I guess you could you know draw if, if you had to uh, some sort of correlation there. Uh, you know 
when you're flying your F-16, you just have the mission, right? And, and you're leading a four-ship um, or an eight-ship or whatever, but you just have the mission. But when you land, you plug yourself back into the real world. I would say that organizations in general, uh, maybe by design, uh, move slowly. Uh, I have not accomplished as many or as much things as I wanted to uh, in my time here. Uh, that's because you don't realize uh, how slow organizations change, uh, culturally change, mission change. And then, it, as you addressed early on in the podcast, um, and things like they're going to take your C-130s away or COVID or George Floyd get thrown in there. Uh, your your plans to get the organization to where you want to or things you ought to do uh, get changed for you by outside influences and uh, the environment. So it's good. And so I would say hey, commanders, leaders at all levels, uh, give yourself some grace in not accomplishing your goals. Have lofty goals, but, but recognize it. It's a slog. It's going to take a lot of time, and you're not going to change it as much as you thought you were. And that's okay. It takes a little bit of organizational grace and personal grace to just kind of look beyond that and say, hey, we got through the hard stuff. Probably better for it. I, I, I hope so. I, I, someday I'll either retire or, or move on or whatever that looks like uh, for my future. Um, and the question I'll ask myself and how I grade myself will be, hey, are are we better than we were? Not how much better, you know, but did the needle move? And uh, if the if the needle moved, uh, I'll, I'll be happy. So, do you think the needle has moved? Good question. I, I believe the needle has moved. We're we're certainly, uh, I would say, better. Better is a, a a difficult word, but I would say more prepared to go uh, after the high end fight than we were before. Um, some of that, hopefully, was. Uh, some leadership I, I was able to provide or the leadership team in the wing was able, able to provide. And some of it's environmental as far as we just have to be, right? The, 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 the threats we face now are different than three years ago and 10 years ago, and we have to be in a different place. So uh, it's probably a combination of the environment that we're operating in and the leadership team uh, pushing uh, to make sure that we're better. So I hope so. I think so. I do too. I, I both hope so and think so. We've been serving here together in our two capacities, uh, well, for about three years, give or take. And we're, we're rounding out our time serving together, still facing a ton of, of challenges, and uncertainty, especially in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, what gives you hope? Oh, I'm hope, hopeful all the time. I guess, uh, back to my personality, uh, some folks will say I'm very stoic and, you know, hard-nosed or whatever, but uh, I, I am a remarkably hopeful pe- person, and, and what gives me the most hope is, is airmen. Uh, we, we've got good people entering the organization, good people serving in the organization. Uh, we don't all agree on the different paths forward, nor should we, right? We're supposed to have uh, those disagreements about the the how the whys right all all those type of things and that's okay but um, airmen who put on a uniform who have agreed to serve uh, they they if you want to know what makes me come to work every day that's it right uh, serving with people who put on this uniform and are willing to bring this organization and the United States military to the next step and face the future co- uh, conflicts or challenges um, yeah I I have 
remarkable confidence in those, uh, those airmen and, and therefore a lot of hope. When you took on the role of commander, um, there is a, in military culture, when, when somebody takes on the CEO or the commander position, the flag is literally passed from one to the next. And there's usually a, a good celebration after that. And there's hope and there's anticipation and all that. You did something unique in yours where rather than have people line up and say, hey, congratulations to you, uh, you wanted them to say thank you to some important veterans, yeah. veterans from the, uh, the Vietnam era. Why was that important to you? Because uh, it's not about me, nor, nor, nor should it be. Um, I've had plenty of opportunity to gain whatever accolades I'm going to get in my career. Uh, at a certain point, you, you shift and you, it, it is literally about others. Um, whether it's about others in the organization, giving them the tools uh, that they need, the resources they need to be able to be uh, their best. Um, and in this case, it was about uh, some Vietnam veterans who, uh, as I said during my change of command speech, uh, you know, I've walked into many a coffee shops and had coffee purchased for me and thanks for your service. And these folks never, never got that in, in many ways. The reason we get those thank yous is because uh, when they came back from Vietnam and were treated the way that they were treated, uh, they said never again. We are not going to allow another generation of American service uh, men to be treated this way. And so I wanted to take a uh, just a small opportunity to say, hey, thanks to you, and uh, and let those those ten individuals uh, stand up and be recognized. What? Do you think is the best way people can honor veterans on Veterans Day? Yeah, they don't want any more than a thank you. Literally, uh, yeah, the coffees are nice. The you know the occasional meal, oh, if you would, that's paid for by someone else is nice, and that's it's a gesture. But just an honest uh, thank you. Under understand that your service was in somehow a sacrifice either to you and your time, to your family, away from them, whatever that is. Um, and there's just so many ways that uh, service, servicemen have served, servicemen and women, uh, that you can't cover it all, but a thank you for your service. Uh, that, that is all. You, you, you see that veteran, and, and we all know him, right? It's, you'll see him out either wearing a, uh, a shirt or, or oftentimes a hat that says, you know, U.S. Navy on it. It's got their ship on there or it's got uh, U.S. Army and uh, some, they call it the 34th or an infantry division of whatever. Uh, you know they're a veteran uh, by the way they hold themselves. Uh, you'll, you'll see them at a, a, a ball game. You know, they're the guys who are standing up a little straighter during the national anthem. Uh, just say thank you. Simple. Colonel James Cleet. Thanks for your service. Ah, thanks, Chief. And thanks for joining me on Beneath the Wing. All right.